Let's begin reading in verse number 17. The Word of God says, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, every one taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. Let's pray. Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for what this day means. We thank you for what every Sunday means for us as believers, living in the power and glory of that resurrected day. But Lord, we just pray tonight that you would help draw our hearts closer unto you through the preaching of your word. That Lord, not that, not simply that we might examine you, but that you might examine us. And through the ministration of the Holy Ghost, as you convict us and convince us of our uh, lives, what needs to be changed and what needs to be corrected to be closer to the image of your dear Son, Lord, I pray that we'd be submitted. I pray that we would uh, have our hearts in subjection unto you. And I pray that we'd leave this place more like Christ than when we came in. Now, Lord, we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I want to say a word about the uh, climate that was at Corinth at this time. I, you know it's going to be a fun sermon when the first verse the preacher reads is, Now, in this I declare unto you, I praise you not. Somebody say amen to that. That's Paul's way of saying, hey, I ain't happy with the way that you're behaving. And uh, no doubt when they read this, now there had been earlier on in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul said there were some things he could praise them about, he was proud of them about. But when he heard about what was going on in their church, particularly around the taking of the Lord's Supper, he said, I I'm sorry, I can't brag on you about this. I'm hearing a lot of bad things that are taking place there. I want you to consider, just by way of introduction, three simple thoughts about what things looked like if you had gone to the church at Corinth. Let me say that, number one, this was a place that when they met together, it was damaging. Notice again what he says in verse 17. He said that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. You know, it's possible to come to the house of God and do more damage than you get help from the house of God. Amen? Uh, let me tell you something. We all need to understand. I, 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 this came across my mind. I always think about, you see these signs, if you ever go out hiking. Anybody go out hiking? Anybody? <laughs> That's about the response I expected. Yeah. Well, me and Richard were talking this morning. I said, how many of you believe in love? And everybody just looked at me. <laughs> Man, I thought that's a good testimony right there. Love? What's love? But, uh, you know, if, if you go out hiking, you'll see little uh, little signs someplace. And they'll say things oftentimes like this. Take only photographs, leave only footprints. And what they're saying is, when you come through this trail, don't leave it worse off than you found it. Could I say to you tonight that in the house of God, while we all need to be contributing to the cause of Christ and to the work that's going on in the local church, it is possible to be causing damage by our presence in the house of God. Now, I, I'm not, and we could, we could go into all of the background. We understand that the moral sins that were going on at Corinth. We understand the, the confusion that was going on. But can I just exhort you to this tonight, because this is just a little introduction in my message, to just simply say we ought to all be contributors to the house of God. And I'm not talking about tithe. I mean, listen, as a believer, we ought to, you know, pay uh, what we owe the Lord. But I'm saying, as believers, we through our presence and we through our service, we should always be adding to the house of God and not taking away from it. We ought to always be encouraging the growth of, of the local church. We ought to always be encouraging the unity of the local church. We ought to be encouraging the worship in the local church and not detracting from it. 
You know, I'll be honest, we all have bad days. Anybody out there have bad days? All right, a lot more people than go hiking. Amen? <laughs> My bad days are usually the days I go hiking. Somebody say amen to that. But, uh, you know, uh, we all have bad days. I promise you there's been times I've come in, and I'm the pastor. You know, I, it's my job to come in and preach the Word of God. And I promise you there's been days I've come in in a bad mood, and I've probably quenched the Holy Ghost. We all have days like that. But can I ask you this simple question? No doubt you've been presented with this thought before. But if every member of Wall Ridge Baptist Church went to church like you, what kind of a church would we have? I'm talking about, we all have bad days. I understand that. But I'm talking about on a consistent basis. If everybody had the, the faithfulness record that you have, what would our attendance look like? If everybody uh, tithed the way that you tithe, what would our tithe look like? Would our bills get paid? If everybody served the amount that you serve and the way that you serve, would we ever get anything done? See, the truth is, we can be sometimes consumers in the house of God and not be being contributors. And sometimes we can, by our presence, by our spirit, by our attitude, be damaging the work of God as opposed to helping it. I've oftentimes told people, and they've been praying about where they want to go to church, or I've even had people come to me and say, Preacher, I believe it's the will of God that you know we go somewhere else and everything. I've told them before, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. If it's not the will of God for you to be here, we don't want you here. All you're going to do is quench the Holy Ghost, be miserable, be be uh, be unkind, be ugly, and I and I don't mean that critical of anyone, but that's what happens when Christians are out of the will of God. And by the same token, if you believe it's the will of God for you to be here, and if you're anywhere else, I promise you, you're going to do more damage to them than you will help. See, God has a will for your life and mine. And God wants us in the middle and center of that will. And obviously there were people here at Corinth that when they came together, it was hurting the cause of Christ more than helping it. Let me say, number one, that it was damaging, but number two, it's because there was some discord. We get a little bit of an understanding of what's going on. In verse 18, he says, For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. Now, I like the way Paul says this. He says, I partly believe it. It's almost as though he's saying this, I'm not taking for granted that what I have heard is true, but knowing everything that's going on at the church at Corinth, it does not surprise me that there would be divisions. Now, when he talks about divisions here, it is talking about discord in the sense of disagreements. But particularly, you know what it's talking about? It's talking about sectarianism. It's talking about, can I use a good, a good a word that you might be a little more familiar with? The word clicks. Amen? What he's saying is there's little pockets here. He had already addressed this. He had talked about how some of them said, I'm of Paul. Some said, I'm of Apollo. Some said, I'm of, of, of Cephas. Some said, I'm of Jesus. I, I read one commentator. I thought this was good. He said this, that it's just as wicked to make Jesus simply the leader of your band that you're in as it is to make Peter or Apollos or Cephas. See, the reality is this. Jesus is not one of several. Jesus is not one of many. Jesus isn't just the best out of the lot. He is the one and only. He is the centerpiece around which our existence and our worship and our service should revolve. And what I believe he's saying here is he's saying, listen, uh, there's disunity in your church. You're pitted one against another. This is not a good and healthy climb. You know, part of the thing that I think is is troubling about the church today, we have a bad habit of burying our problems. Uh, when, we're, when we got a problem with somebody, uh, oftentimes we never deal with it. We never go to them. They never go to us. And we just uh, let that thing, we bury it under and then we just let it fester. 
And then pretty soon there's a cold chill begins to blow through the church because so many people got problems one with another that they've never hashed out, they've never settled. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying every Sunday night somebody needs to stand up and let somebody have it. Somebody say amen to that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is this, that we as believers need to make sure that nothing is getting in and becoming a wedge in the local body. And it's easy to let that happen. We need to make sure our hearts and spirits are attuned to the Lord. Now, don't get, there's going to be people that are going to say, well, preacher, what if they won't get right? And I'm trying to get... Listen, there's a thousand scenarios. Here's my question. Have you made an attempt? Have you asked God to forgive you if there's something you know that you've done wrong? And if you have asked God to forgive you, have you gone to that person and asked them to forgive you? Have you made an attempt to get it right and make it right? What he's saying here is you've got little cliques forming. You've got sections forming. Uh, you're, getting, uh, you're, you're falling into camps and drawing battle lines and, and quarreling with one another. And then notice what he says in verse number 19. Not only was it damaging when they came together and there was discord, but they were also in disarray. He says in verse 19, For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, I, I'll be honest with you. I have maybe a little uh, different opinion about this verse than you might have about it. Notice he does not say there are. He said there must be. And I think this is a twofold application. I think for one thing, what he's saying is this. The reason there are divisions is because there is bad doctrine somewhere. You know, a lot of times you hear people say things like this. Doctrine divides. No, doctrine, uh, doctrine does divide in a sense, but the reality is we all have doctrine. We all have things we believe. The question is, do we have unity on those matters? Now, I want, I want to make something very clear. And I understand maybe this tonight is a little pastoral in nature, maybe focused around the administration of the local church. Let me say this. I don't expect everybody to believe everything the way I do. I don't want a church full of brainwashed people. We're going to agree about things. We're going to disagree about things. There's going to be things, I promise you. Listen, if I go back and listen to my sermons, there's times I don't even agree with myself. Somebody say amen to that. But we do need to understand that there does need to be some semblance of cohesiveness to the body of faith that we have, to the statement of faith and to the ideals of what we believe. Uh, when we allow pet doctrines to begin to take over here and there, and when we allow doctrine to become subversive, meaning uh, that it is becoming a wedge. And when I say doctrine, I don't mean doctrine in principle, but I mean in a particular doctrine. I, I've uh, A lot of times, I'll give you this example. I hope you're okay with this tonight. I wanted to give you this example. I had somebody come to me one time, and, uh, and I'm just going to speak real plain with you right now. Is that okay? I had somebody who's been several years ago. This person doesn't go here anymore. But they came to me, and they asked me about the gap theory. Now, I promise you there will be people in this room disagree with what I'm about to say. I, I do not believe in the gap theory. I do not believe there's a gap between Genesis uh, 1-1 and 1-2 or, or between 1-2 and 1-3. I, I don't believe that. I believe that it is one singular, unbroken record. I believe that the Lord created all things in six days, and uh, six literal days. And, uh, but this person came to me. Now, I'll tell you this. There's a difference between the gap theory and the day gap theory. The day gap theory is the belief that each day, and, and sometimes they'll call it day-age theory, things like that, the idea that God created, you know, that a day is not a literal day, but a day is metaphoric for a period of millions of years, and, and the intent behind that logic is to try to prop up uh, evolution and say, well, God used evolution to create. Uh, there, there's a vast difference between the day gap theory and the day-age theory, or the, you know, so on and so forth. But this person, I, I, I'll be honest, I've heard all the arguments for the day gap theory, for the idea that there's gap between Genesis 1, 2, and 3, or 3 and 4. I've heard all the things. I've read the passages where it talks about Satan's fall. I've, I've read over there in the book of Jeremiah and what it says about it. I understand why people feel that way and believe that way. 
and uh, I don't agree with it. There's not enough I see in the Bible to make me agree and ascribe to that. By the same token, there's not enough to me that if I got to heaven and found out that's what really happened, that I feel like I could shake my fist at God and tell Him He lied to me. I, I do believe there is room there for people to have various opinions on that. Now, I'm not talking about theistic evolution. Let me make that clear. I believe God created uh, the world in six days, six literal days. I believe there's no room to uh, wiggle around on that. I believe if we don't believe that, we don't believe our Bible. Somebody say amen to that. But this Sunday school teacher, and they were a Sunday school teacher, they came to me, and they, they did the right thing. They did exactly what a Sunday school teacher should do. They came to me and they said, Brother Toby, uh, I, I'm getting ready to teach through Genesis, and I'm going to come to this passage. And he said, you know what I believe? You know that I believe the gap theory. What do you believe? And I explained to him what I believe. He said, well, what do you want me to do? And this is what I told this brother. I said, well, listen. He said, I don't mind you presenting what you believe to the class. But you need to make abundantly clear what the position of this church is, doctrinally speaking, what our stand is on this matter. And if you want... Now, if it had been something heretical, I would not have allowed him that liberty. Amen? If he had said, well, I'm not sure if, you know, Christ was born of a virgin, I'd say, well, you're a heretic. You know, you need to get saved or get out. But with something that was not a matter of heresy. And by the way, you know how I define heresy? If, if the intent of a particular doctrine is to compromise with the devil, the flesh, or the world, it's heresy. Amen? Uh, that's why, like, the, the, the day-age theory is heresy. There's not a, script, uh, a scrap of Bible behind it. It's just the, the attempt to try to reconcile uh, science falsely so-called with the biblical record. And so what this man believed, and I don't believe the gap theory is heresy. I don't believe uh, that this man was a heretic. And in this matter, I said, well, listen, I don't mind you believing that, but you need to make abundantly clear the position of this church. Now, I say that to say this. I don't expect everybody to cross every T and dot every I the exact way I do. The reality is we ought to all be students of the Bible enough that we are going to have some varying opinions about a few different things. But by and large, we need to understand that the church as a body needs to have a cohesive set of doctrine that we are standing and adhering to. Uh, where we allow doctrines, pet doctrines to come in and heretical doctrines to come in, you know what always happens? People begin to subvert other believers away. And we see, you know, Jude talked about that. And Paul talked about that. Peter talked about that. How that they would come in and, and creep into houses and lead people away unawares. And you see this all the time. That's part of the reason. Man, I don't even know why I'm preaching this, but I believe God's in it. Let me say this to you tonight. And you're, you may get mad at me, okay? But... Listen, that's part of the reason I'm not a big fan of the whole concept of small groups. Now, it's not that I believe it's wrong, scripturally speaking, but I believe they tend to be hotbeds for bad doctrine to spring up. Because oftentimes these things take place in someone's home without any authority from the church or from the pastor. A pastor that's got 35 small groups going every Sunday night can't know what's being preached in every single one. I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong in theory or in principle, but I'm saying it's a dangerous thing for the local church. Because, if you, listen, if you're going to have some of these doctrines spring up, that's going to be oftentimes where they spring up. That's not to say it happens to every single group that meets. That's not to say it happens in every single situation. But it can be a dangerous thing. And when these things start popping up, you know what happens? Pretty soon people start moving into different little groups and cliques. I believe what he's saying is he's saying, I see that there are these divisions, and so there must be some bad doctrine present somewhere. Then I think also, you know what I think he's saying? This is encouraging. He's saying, by the same token, through these divisions, those that are approved among you are going to be made manifest. In other words, this is going to cull the crowd. This is going to separate, amen, the cream from the milk, so to speak. And this is going to show who's true and who's not true. Let me tell you something. God's jealous over His church. 
Amen. We better be careful when we start messing with the local church because God guards the local church. So we see basically that this is a toxic climate that is taking place at the church at Corinth. And it had bled over and began to affect the way that they partook of the Lord's Supper. Now, I want to give you four things tonight. I know we already did a whole bathtub full of preaching, but I want to give you four things tonight that the Lord's Supper is not. Now, next week we'll talk about, Lord willing, what the Lord's Supper is. But I want to give you four things from our text that the Lord's Supper is not. Look at verse number 20. The Bible says, When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Let me say, number one tonight, that the Lord's Supper is not a matter of personal interpretation. There is such thing as the Lord's Supper. It is scripturally described and defined and distinguished. Just because we call something communion, that don't necessarily make it communion. I remember hearing years ago about a famous uh, Bible teacher, and I know who he is, but a famous Bible teacher making the statement that it didn't matter what you took the Lord's Supper with, that all that was just symbolism, and uh, you know you could take it with Doritos and Dr. Pepper if you wanted, it wouldn't really change the substance of the matter. And I understand what he meant. Let me say this, if the Bible teaches us bread and grape juice, then it's bread and grape juice. If the Bible teaches us that this is to be done in remembrance of the Lord's body, then it's to be done in remembrance of the Lord's body. And by the way, a lot of these truths, they extend to many things that, that relate to the local church. There is a concrete, static reality of what the Lord's Supper is. And we are either abiding by that or we are not abiding by it. That's just the simple truth of it. Uh, that we'll go on, we'll explain a little bit more. But let me say this extends to a lot of different areas. There is such a thing as gospel preaching. There is such a thing as biblical preaching. We're either doing those things or we're not doing those things. Let me, and this is a big one. There is such thing as worship. Worship is not just whatever you want it to be. Worship is that which is biblically defined and prescribed as being worship. That's part of the problem is people's worshiping God up at the lake and at the golf course and out on the hiking. Let's preach against that hiking trail. They got me mad talking about hiking trail. I hate to hike. But uh, there are such things, or there is such a thing as biblical worship, and it doesn't take place in those places. Now, don't get me wrong. You say, well, preacher, does that mean a person couldn't worship God up there? Well, that's not to say a person couldn't worship God up there, but I've been to golf courses. That's not what they're doing. I've been up to the lake. That's not what they're doing. I've been on the hiking trails. That's not what they're doing. See, the reality is this. That's true that God cannot be bound in any one place. That's true. Uh, And David ran into this problem. David said, Lord, I want to build you a house. And God said, a house? The universe can't contain me. But when he did finally allow for a building place to be be met, it, it, it wasn't on wheels. Amen? It wasn't on wheels. And what I mean to say by that is this, God has certain prescribed elements when it comes to the matter of worship that we ought to follow according to the truth. And I'm not going to get into it, we're not preaching on worship tonight. But just suffice it to say that the Lord's Supper is not a matter of personal interpretation. It's not whatever you want it to be or whatever I want it to be. Uh, it's not whatever this church wants it to be or whatever that church wants it to be. It's what the Word of God says it to be. And there are churches that do not keep the Lord's Supper in accordance with the truth of the Word of God. And for them, that's not the Lord's Supper. And this is what was taking place in Corinth. Uh, Paul says, listen, I know what you're doing, and what that is is not the Lord's Supper. So let me say, number one, it's not a matter of personal interpretation. Now, I want to say this to you as well. It's not a matter of pagan imitation. 
Can I give you a little background about what's going on in these verses? Uh, listen to what the Bible says in the book of Jude, chapter number 1, verse 12. I know it seems like we're a little bit out of pocket over here in the book of Jude, but listen to what it says. He's talking about these people that had gone into the church and began to subvert believers. And he says, these are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Uh, what does he mean when he says a feast of charity? Well, if you know anything about the New Testament church, you know that they ate a lot. Right? Constantly eating. In fact, the Bible describes it in the book of Acts, chapter number 2. Listen to how often they were eating when the uh, local church first began. In verse number 46, the Bible says, And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with, singleness, with gladness and singleness of heart. Uh, they were meeting daily for time of fellowship around a meal. That's part of the reason I don't feel as bad. People say, man, your church eats all the time. We're just trying to be like a New Testament church. Amen. Best as we can. The local church spent a lot of time eating here. What were they doing? Well, they were called love feasts. They were called agape feasts. And what it would be is a time of fellowship around food in which they would get to know one another and spend time with one another. This was a regular practice and function of the New Testament church. I'll be honest with you, and this is, I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I think what's killing a lot of churches. Now, there are some churches that are being killed because they ain't got no Bible preaching, they ain't got no godly singing, they ain't got no evangelistic outreach. All they have is fellowship. But then there are churches in the other side of the ditch where they've got a lot of those things, but they ain't got no fellowship. Nobody knows anybody's first name. Nobody knows how many kids anybody's got. And I'm not saying that those things necessarily make you inherently more holy, but the local church was a tight-knit group of people. And I'm not saying that they were cliquish or exclusive in their nature or, or in their attitude, but I'm saying they, they knew one another, they worked with one another, they loved one another, they bore one another's burdens, they laughed one another laughed, they wept one another wept, they were close one with another. Part of the way this was facilitated is the local church would meet together and they would eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Well, part of what they would do along with this is often it was customary after the meal to observe the Lord's Supper. And that's the reason you'll see this phrase over and over again in the book of Acts, the breaking of bread. That's speaking distinctly about, when it's talking in the context of the local church meeting together, that's speaking distinctly about the Lord's Supper. When they first, uh, the local church started, every single day that they met, they would observe the Lord's Supper. By the time you get down to Acts chapter number 20, they were only doing it once a week. In verse 7 it says, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, uh, and uh, ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. So by the time you get down to Acts chapter number 20, they're only meeting one, once a week. But what they would do is they would eat these meals together, these fellowship meals. In fact, a lot of times when they met, they were having to travel long distances uh, to be able to meet together with other believers. And because of that, of course, back then you didn't jump in your Chevy and go down the road at 60 miles an hour. Back then you walked everywhere or you rode a, a pack animal somewhere. And so they would meet together and oftentimes they would bring food and they would share a meal together. Well, when the Bible talks about later on in this chapter, and you'll see it down at the end of, uh, of chapter number 11, he gives this instruction. He says, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Here's what they were doing. They'd be sitting around eating together, and all of a sudden, one would get finished. I'm a fast eater. Anybody in here a fast eater? I want to eat before my stomach tells me I'm full. Because that's the way you eat the most. Amen? But I, I'm a fast eater, typically. And so uh, they'd be eating this meal. Well, all of a sudden, they would launch into the Lord's Supper. 
They were still merry with mirth from having been sitting, talking and fellowshipping and laughing. Some people would still be eating. Some people wouldn't be done. And they would launch into the Lord's Supper. And what Paul is instructing them to do is to draw a, a sharp, marked, demarked line between those two events. And to not let them blend one with the other. Now, here's what I mean about pagan imitation. Part of the reason they would do this is twofold. One, because it was representative to the Jewish individuals of the Passover meal that they would eat together. Uh, they were used to, and the Passover, if you ever study the Passover, one thing they did a lot is they ate. Amen? Uh, in fact, they were commanded to take a, a lamb and to slay it and to eat the whole thing in one night. That's my kind of meeting. Amen? <laughs> to eat the whole thing in one night. And they would be eating unleavened bread and so on and so forth. And the entire Passover observation was centered around the dinner table. And they would eat uh, one with another. And so this was natural for the Jewish uh, person that had accepted Christ because they had been used to the Passover. Now, for the Gentile, they had been used to the worship feast that the pagan gods had uh, that the, the Gentiles had been giving to the pagan gods. And at these places, there'd be all manners of debauchery. They'd eat until they were so full they couldn't eat anymore. They'd go and vomit, go back and eat more. And it was considered one singular event for them to, to eat and be merry and, and have this merriment and enjoyment. And that was considered a form of worship. Here's what Paul's telling them. That's not what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is not something, though it does benefit you, it's not given for your benefit. Though it may be something you uh, enjoy, it's not given for your enjoyment. It's given for the glory of God and to bring to your mind the remembrance of the Lord's sacrifice for you. Now, here's what we need to understand. There's a twofold application to us today. One, as it relates to the Lord's Supper, we need to understand that it's a special thing when we take the Lord's Supper. It doesn't save anybody. It doesn't make anybody more saved. It doesn't sanctify anyone in the sense of making them more uh, supernaturally righteous or anything. I'm not implying that. But I'm saying it's a serious thing. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a somber thing. But it's a serious thing. And it's a precious thing to take the Lord's Supper. It's not just like any old meal. It's a precious thing. But then I think it's important for us to understand because there's a whole barrage of people that are trying to claim today. You see at every turn of the, uh, of the road trying to claim that various things in the Christian faith have roots in paganism. Let me say this to you tonight. There, there may be some things they can point out to this or that and, and little straw man arguments they have. But when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it doesn't have any root in the pagan feasts and festivals. Just the same way that the priesthood that existed in the Old Testament is nothing like the pagan priesthood that the Roman Catholic Church is modeled after today. In, in the same way that the sacrifices in the Old Testament were nothing like the pagan sacrifices that they made to their gods, the Lord's Supper is not anything akin to that. Uh, the intent, by the way, for those revelers, uh, the Gentile revelers, uh, was to try to appease their God in some way. We're not taking the Lord's Supper to please God. We're taking the Lord's Supper because God has already been pleased through the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. Now, we are doing it in obedience unto Him. There's no question. But we're not doing it to try to curry favor or gain favor with God. The Lord's Supper is not an imitation of a pagan ritual. Let me give you a third thing tonight. Let me say, not only is it not a matter of uh, personal interpretation or pagan imitation, but let me say, number three, it's not a matter of prideful intimidation. Now, here's what would happen. They'd be eating these meals, and one person would have more food than somebody else. And oftentimes they would get to the end of the meal, and one person would gorge themselves, and another one would still be hungry. 
And so what they were doing, look down what it says in our text at verse number 21. He makes this statement. He says, For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunk. He's saying what you've done is turned these love feasts, turned these uh, times of, of breaking bread and of, uh, and of eating together. You have merged that and married that with the Lord's Supper, and you've made it something that's causing people to feel belittled when they come into the house of God and observe the Lord's Supper. You know, we have a tendency to do the same thing today, but we do it with different stuff. We do it when it comes to standards. And let me say, I'm for standards. Amen? Every place has got standards. Go, listen, go try to walk into the Burger King buck naked. They got standards. Everybody has standards. I'm for standards. But let me tell you something. My standards don't curry me favor with God. They don't make me righteous before God. Uh, we do the same thing when it comes oftentimes to tithing and to giving to the Lord. You'll hear people say things like this. Well, you know, I've never seen them pay tithe. It ain't none of your business whether they pay tithe. Can I let you in on a little secret? I don't know what people pay other than me and my wife. That's it. And I prefer it that way. I'm not saying it's wrong for a preacher. No, I prefer it that way. You know why? I don't want to know who's paying tithes and who ain't while I'm up here preaching. I might get on you. Amen? In the flesh. And I don't want that temptation. I don't want thought with that. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says it's not even let your right hand know what your left hand's doing. You know, a lot of times we do the same thing when it comes to worship. I'm for people worshiping. But you better make sure if you're worshiping, you're worshiping for the Lord and not worshiping so that somebody else sees you worshiping. That's not the intent of it. We do the same thing when it comes to service. What I'm saying is this. We may not do it typically with the Lord's Supper, although you can. Can I give you an example of how people do it with the Lord's Supper? They might say something like this. Well, you notice he didn't take the bread this month. Ain't none of your business, neighbor. I'm just being honest with you. Can I tell you what goes to the pastor's mind? When I see somebody that is a regular member not take the Lord's Supper, what goes through my mind is God bless them for being spiritual enough to not take the Lord's Supper unworthily if there's something wrong in their life. Now, and I'm not saying I'm proud to see people be in an occasion where they can't take the Lord's Supper, but I am proud because you know what a lot of people would do? They just take it anyway because they aren't taking it with any reverence in the first place. I'm saying this, we just need to be honest and be accountable unto God. Let God worry about everybody else. You worry about you. Amen? Uh, that's, and, you know, I make a concerted effort. I, I, I don't even like how many times I've said the word I in this sermon, but I try to make a concerted effort to not look around and observe who's taken and who's not. It ain't none of my business. Amen? I'm going to say something that might upset a few people. It may not. I hope it doesn't. But can I say to you tonight that if the Lord's will, if God's design behind the Lord's Supper was for a pastor to pick him a group of about 10 or 12 people he thinks are super spiritual and tuck them away on a, on a Monday night where nobody's going to show up and do the Lord's Supper in secret, then I don't believe God would have written this to a church. He would have written it to a pastor. Amen? He didn't tell the pastor to examine the people. He said, let the people examine. He said, let a man examine himself. Now, I'm not saying we need to be irreverent or we need to be loose with the giving of the Lord's Supper. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we need to come up to somebody that we know is living out of the will of God and try to get them to take the Lord's Supper. But I'm saying this, we better be careful of trying to be the Holy Ghost when it comes to these matters. Because i got news for you. Oftentimes, there's things going on in people's lives. You may look at them and think they're perfectly fine, but God knows the difference. By the same token, there might be somebody that just went through a mess, and the night before they got here to take the Lord's Supper, they got their heart right with God. We don't know what's going on in somebody's heart. We don't know what's going on in somebody's life. And the Lord's Supper is not meant to be an occasion to look around the room and see who's obeying and who's not obeying. And that's true for everything, not just for the Lord's Supper. 
not just the Lord's Supper. Let me give you one final thing and I'll be done tonight. Let me say it is not a matter of personal interpretation. It's not a, pa- a matter of pagan imitation. It's not a matter of prideful intimidation. But finally, and I'm done, look at verse 22. The Bible says, i got to turn my page here. The Bible says, What, have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? He says, I praise you not. Let me say, the Lord's Supper is not a matter of profane indifference. When I say profane, I don't necessarily mean something vile, but I mean something that's not holy. The Lord's Supper is not something that's regular. The Lord's Supper is something that's holy. You know what he's saying to him? He's saying, if all you want to do is just eat, why don't you go home and do that? Now, again, I don't believe Paul's saying it's wrong to gather together and to eat. Because Paul himself, evidently, in Acts chapter 20, was there when they was having a feast and when they was eating. I don't believe Paul's saying it's wrong to fellowship around the dinner table. I think what he's saying is this, the purpose and intent of the Lord's Supper is not for that. Now, I will go ahead and admit to you, when they did the Lord's Supper, I I, I have a hard time believing they had little bitty plastic, like two-ounce cups, okay? And and I have a hard time believing they had little, you know, oyster crackers, or like us, we make our own and we've got little bitty pieces. When they were eating the Lord's Supper, they broke bread. They, They had unleavened bread. They had large pieces. And so some people would eat more than others. Some people would drink more of the grape juice than than others would. We know they all would drink from the same cup and so on and so forth. But let me say this to you tonight, how it applies to us. What he's saying is, this ain't your house. This is God's house. This ain't your supper. It's the Lord's Supper. And this ain't just any old day. This is holy. So you ought to treat it that way. And can I say, as it relates both to the house of God anytime we come to the house of God, but particularly in, in speaking about the Lord's Supper, it ain't just any cracker. It ain't just any grape juice. Now, can I, I, I want to clear something up. I, I don't want you to go out of here misunderstanding me. It's, I, you can go down to Walmart by the same grape juice. Right? You, you can go, you can make your own bread. I'm not saying there's anything intrinsically supernatural about those things. But I'm saying when we're taking them within the context and setting of the Lord's Supper, they don't transform into anything. They don't. I, I reject the heresy of transubstantiation. I don't believe it becomes the body of Christ. I don't believe that grape juice becomes the blood of Christ. And there ain't a, there ain't a bit, there ain't a lick of scripture anywhere that would support that. Uh, people want to say, uh, well, you know, he said you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yeah, he did say that. But did he ever offer himself up to be cannibalized by anybody? And by the way, the Bible says he took the bread in his hand and he said, this is my body. This is my body. If he was giving his body, why didn't he just give his body for them to consume in a cannibalistic manner? No, obviously he's speaking metaphorically. So why would we believe it was a metaphor when Jesus gave it, but now it's not a metaphor when we take it? That doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying it supernaturally turns into those things, but I'm saying it ought to be a hallowed and a sacred thing to us. And we ought not treat it just like any old service. Well, not treat it just like any old occurrence. It's a holy thing. It's a precious thing. And that's true as it relates to anything in the house of God. Now, and Brother Larry's always very clear and very careful to make this distinction. We want you to be at home in the Lord's house. In other words, we don't want you to be at home the way you are at home. I don't want you, you know, propping your feet up on the front or whatever. But what we're saying is this. We do want you to feel welcome here. We do want you to feel as at home as you can in the Lord's house. But let us never forget this is God's house. When we go to church, man, that's a precious thing. Uh, You say, how precious is is the church? Well, the, the, the church is so precious that the Lord loved it and gave Himself for it. That's how precious it is. And I know that's not the building. I understand, but it's the body. 
And so it's a precious thing for us to come and partake in those things. Now, as we go forward, we're going to spend a little more time next week and the week after talking about what it is. But here's what I think we ought to do tonight. I think we ought to search our hearts. We'll go on and look at it later, but that's what Paul says. He says, let a man examine himself. And I think we ought to ask ourselves this. Have we been guilty of maybe some of these things? Have we been guilty about looking at our works and comparing them against somebody else's works? Have we been guilty of comparing our worship to somebody else's worship? Have we been comparing, uh, and I don't mean worship style. You know what I mean. I mean, have we been guilty of saying, well, I shout more than they shout, or well, I sing more than they sing? Don't worry about that. You just do what the Lord would have you to do. And if it's scriptural, the Lord will be pleased with it. Amen? Don't worry about them. They'll answer to God. Or maybe there's been some things where you've been on the flip side of it. You've been looking at it and saying, well, I must not be much of a Christian because I don't serve like they do. I must not be much of a Christian because, you know, I don't worship like they do. Here's what I think we ought to do is commit ourselves afresh and anew to this. Lord, I'm going to follow you in obedience. And I'm going to try to live my life subjected unto you. And not worrying about the eyes and prying attitudes of others. But Lord, I'm going, to, I'm going to lay my heart open and before you and allow you to take control of my life afresh and anew. With our heads bowed, with our eyes closed.